0: This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus. I am sitting with Chris Pettengill, who is running for council. Thank you for doing this, Chris. Yeah, no problem. And uh, it took a little
1: bit of convincing, I think, for you to run this time. It did. I, I really wasn't sure. I, In fairness, I probably would have debated with myself to later the end anyways, but this time it was really, really hard.
0: But you're no stranger to politics. You do have some experience.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I've spent a lot of time at council um, and, you know, on the chamber board, all that kind of thing. So a lot of seeing how it works, uh, a lot of committees, all that kind of thing. And then I spent two years uh, chairing the B.C. Green Party. So that just finished in June. And so I saw everything from the provincial side there and you're also part of the out council
0: that's where i know you from as well as the art council you're a mm-hmm.
1: director on there you, you have you, you're sitting on a lot of director chairs i think yeah or i was i had to <laughs> step down from all of them but you know tried to be involved as much as i can
0: there's 22 other candidates and i asked this straight off the bat with pretty much all the candidates now how do you stand out from the other 22.
1: i guess i'd say experience uh, just understanding of, of how it works i mean I'm seeing a lot of candidates that are really smart, but they haven't had that much exposure to council. So I think think a lot of them, or a number of them, will do quite well uh, if they get elected, but it'll take them a little longer to ramp up, I think, uh, because I actually know a lot of the people. I know a lot of the processes already. uh, I'll have a much, you know, hit the ground running much, much faster.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, in politics, you must know your policy, but even then you have staff to help you through it. It's about building those relationships, relationships within the community and within those you need to make negotiations with you have connections with the provincial level and leads to the straight into the next question we have lots of amenities to fix we have transit to fix and this of course involves dealing with the provincial government um where, where, where do you like to start on those uh
1: well <laughs> <laughs> uh you know I, I think for regional transit that is sort of in progress i mean i i think seen some discussion online and so on where people have suggested that there's nothing been happening but there has been a fair bit i've gone to the uh, house Sound community forums they're always talking about it there and so that's all the communities along house sound and, and this is a, a big topic they talk about and so that actually is moving forward i think it's it's a, an issue of, of shepherding that along with a lot of the other things it, it's a matter of finding a balance I, I think some of the questions that have been coming in so far almost looks at these as if they're independent issues but if you change the housing density, that really changes the practicality or not of, of local transit. And, you know, what you do with parking, if you make parking easier, it makes transit harder. And so all these things are, are interconnected. So we've got to kind of figure out how to balance it all. And uh, I'll give you our trademark chicken and egg question in, in a
0: bit here because, again, it's not one of those questions we ask all the candidates. When we're looking at transit, we, we of course we have to get the un- municipalities on board. And it was Whistler that sort of canned it the last time, but now we have an acclaimed mayor, Jack Crompton, in, in Whistler that's willing to work on, working on creating a system within, the, the uh, within the corridor, that may include Pemberton as well. What do you need from Whistler? What kind of is there anything specific that you need to help uh, build this along, or we'd like to see in within the process?
1: From what I've seen from Jack, is is that he is quite supportive of the idea of regional transit, and it's a matter I think of. And my understanding where the process is, the regional district has basically said to the province, we want this. We want to find a way to go forward, and the province has given a, a couple of details, and I not sure the exact details of it but they have sort of outlined some specific steps specific things we have to ask for in a specific way and and as far as i understand everybody in the region is on board with that and so they're all kind of moving together to get that make it happen
0: is there a place for private companies or the private sector to fill in some of the uh, the voids that possibly may be left by greyhound disappearing
1: absolutely i think it's you know government moves slow so it's <laughs> not just a you know something we can do it's we're just gonna have to uh, I think facilitate that somehow transportation and transit is is really interesting because with electric cars with car subscriptions with you know all these sorts of car shares the whole landscape is really changing so fast and and I think that is you know to the fairness uh, in fairness to the province one of the challenges is do we spend um, several millions of dollars in investing in a particular plan that's gonna be obsolete in two years at the same time we need something like pretty immediately so
0: you're saying subscription cars. There's plenty of companies in Vancouver. Are, do you think Squamish is ready for that?
1: We are starting to approach that density. Uh, one of the companies has started with two cars here. I uh, can't remember which one. So, And you, you see the number of people that want to come to Squamish, and they go back to Vancouver. I think we're at that spot where there's going to be some risk, but I, I think a, s- a smart entrepreneur could make a go of that.
0: Now, also, there's apps like PopaRide and stuff like that, that that's been uh, popping up in in Squamish, where it's like eight bucks to get in the car. I mean, mm-hmm. is that is that also another feasible answer, sort of another private sector thing that you would gladly support, or would you rather have a sort of a, a self-contained
1: system? One of the advantages to being having been involved with the BC Green Party is we've been pushing the province on ride sharing for quite a while and saying, let's get going on this. I, I mean, there's lots of complex issues like how do you make it safe for the passengers, you know, how do you make sure the the driver is a good driver and isn't going to, you know, cause an accident. So there's definitely some issues, but I think, I mean, people are driving their cars all the time. It doesn't make sense to have only one person in the car when 10 people need to go to Vancouver, right? There are solutions there, and we just have to you know, maybe be a little bit brave, but find our way to them.
0: So in terms of funding, a lot of these projects are funding at least regional times. They're talking about a gas tax uh, because, you know, as you know and everyone else knows, what we pay for gas up here is similar to what we pay in Vancouver, and Vancouver has all that excise tax, whereas here we don't. How do we make these gas companies first stop gouging or levy a tax for us to use for our transit? Although there's no guarantee, I think that these private companies will not add to the gas that we're already paying for the possible gas tax they're talking about?
1: Well, I mean, I guess this gets back to the regional district conversation. I mean, that is one of the key pieces that the regional district is asking from the province. And I believe, you know, the province has been s- thinking or suggesting that we would become part of BC Transit and our our gas tax would go into that pool and then we get a little piece out of that. And I think that is from what I understand, one of the concerns of the regional district is, well, no, no, we, if we collect the gas tax here, we want to make sure it goes towards our regional transit. So uh, I think that is, a, from what I understand, one of the key conversations going forward between our region and the province.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of negotiating, a lot of talking still to be done. Everyone says the transit's a foregone conclusion, but there's still a lot of, I think, sticky points that still need to be figured out, like money, how we're going to pay for it. We're, we're kind of short on money. So back to the chicken and egg question I was referring to. We need to sort of bring in more money, which means there's talk about diversifying the economy by possibly bringing in companies. Um, if you're bringing in companies, then we have to work on housing, but then we have already some some housing issues, uh, as in w- it's, it's a, there's a crunch going on right now. So chicken and egg question, wh- what should we be working on? Should we be working on the housing aspect, the business aspect, or where should we start focusing?
1: From the people I've been talking to in business so far, I mean, what I'm hearing it's pretty hard to open a business right now in Squamish and not do well with the caveat that can you get employees and the barrier for employees is affordable housing that I think is the real piece we're gonna have to try and tackle and it's a challenging one when you've got the lower mainland housing market that's driving up our market we have a, a capitalist system where the wealthiest people get to pick and live in the nicest places and we live in one of the nicest places so you know how do we manage that and I think you know I do not have expertise in housing authorities and that kind of thing, but I do feel that something Whistler-like where there is some degree of of control of the pricing for employees, that's going to be the real thing that kicks our employment and our businesses up another notch here more than anything else we could do. Right now, the employees want to be here. We don't have a a problem attracting business or employees if we can get the, the housing piece figured out do you think adding another level of government though would
0: be beneficial or just simply bog the system down i mean the ocp sort of shows what lands are going to be what we're going to plan on developing here housing there uh, isn't it just simply a question of maybe trying to create a rental market that's a feasible r- rental market that's not totally overpriced for, for in terms of affordable housing because when you're talking about housing authority you're talking about creating a whole new level of government structure to be included into what the process is. And I think so far the process is, I don't know, maybe you don't think so, a little bogged down?
1: When I say housing authority, what I'm thinking about there is sort of a legal framework whereby you can control the pricing for resales or rentals where it's not, you know, sky's the limit, whatever I can charge, I can get. I mean, that's the important piece and that's what I'm referring to when I say housing authority. I don't necessarily want a whole additional bureaucracy that costs a bunch of money. Airbnb comes into this because we have a lot of people who are depending on airbnb right now to afford the mortgages the district waived dcc fees for people who are doing additional suites to try and create more rental housing but a, a lot of that went into airbnb and that was not the district's intent and council has acknowledged that i went to the council committee of the whole meeting the other day and Councillor elliott was in a session with a lot of other districts that are dealing with this you know vancouver has a special relationship with airbnb where they get access to airbnb's data because vancouver (laughs) is such a big city and so they're they're able to keep their enforcement costs a little bit down and try and manage things that way do some taxation that brings in revenue that they can then do some subsidized housing with um i guess tofino's experience was you know they don't have access to that data i think they'd like it but they did from what i understood karen to say put in a pretty strong enforcement mechanism but what happened is then, instead of putting those units, taking them out of Airbnb and putting them to long-term rental market, the the landlords just said, like, I don't want to deal with renters, I don't want to deal with the hassle, it's not worth it, I'm just taking my units off the market completely. So, Councillor Elliott brought it up, and council seemed to agree, is that anything we do on Airbnb, we have to realize that people are using this to afford their mortgages. And if it's not going to solve the long term rental problem, then, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on that. And so then that leaves us with the question is, how do we get long term rentals on the market? And and so I think that's where some sort of housing authority type thing comes in.
0: Yeah. I mean, Airbnb is is an issue. You know, you brought up a good point that if if I can't do my Airbnb, then I'm not going to put my suite on the market. I'm just not going to do it. A short term solution would be to sort of you know, enforce a little bit of the Airbnb, open up to the rental market. So we have at least not a 0.0 rental market. We have at least some rentals mm-hmm. that you can go in and live and pay rent and do your thing. But if people are refusing to actually do that and they'd rather do the Airbnb or nothing, then you're still stuck in a bit of a quagmire. How do we fix it in the short term? Long term it's great if we're building some rental housing. You, you zone or differently so we have rental affordable housing. But then, again, as like you, you said, too, it's a free market. If, if there's no market for it, then how are we going to force developers to do it? You see how the, it just keeps going. It's like, all right, so Airbnb is bad. So how do we fix the short-term problem? And then how do we get developers to help us with our long-term problem?
1: You know, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that Airbnb is bad. I think it, it's brought a ton more tourism business to our community and you know it makes affordable for people who are struggling to pay their mortgage. So it, it is a matter, though, of, of how do we get that additional long-term rental. I, I mean, the one thing that was brought up at Council was the idea of instead of waiving DCC fees, you give someone a credit you know, four or five years down the road if they've kept it on the market. As a long-term rental for that period and and sort of incentivizing keeping stuff in the long-term rental market and this is where I don't have the details on the legality like just because it wants to, the municipality can't necessarily say to a landlord you must keep that as a long-term rental so the municipality has to figure out a way to manage this within its its power so there's good understanding now at council and and I I hope that the new counselors whoever they are coming on board will understand some of these issues and how to balance them Yeah, the awareness is there. It's how to to fix it. Just being sure that we don't sort of jump and say, oh, well, if we just toss out Airbnb, get rid of them, the problem's going to be fixed. Because, you know, Tofino's experience and the experience of other municipalities in BC is like, well, no, that doesn't actually necessarily solve the problem.
0: Next up is developers when they come and develop in this town. I guess it's one of those things where we have to negotiate for extra amenities or um, some rental units or... Big complaint of the last four years was that uh, a lot of money was left on the table. We could have um, had a lot more to work with than we currently do. Uh, do you agree with that?
1: The only sort of leverage the municipality has is when a developer wants to upzone. If they're buying a, a property that's already zoned for what they want to do, there isn't that opportunity for the district to say, we want some amenities, or at least not nearly as much. Now, when there's an upzoning of some sort, then the municipality has the ability to, it's at their discretion whether or not they approve the upzoning. And so then it's up to the developer to offer something that makes council feel like, yes, we, we should grant this upzoning. And it's sort of a legal gray area where we talk about community amenity contributions and a community amenity contribution policy. But the municipality can't legally say, you must give us this if you want to develop. They have a, a policy which sort of guides them in what they should think about, but it's just sort of weird about how the provincial rules work. So in terms of community amenity contributions and someone who wants an up zone, you know, I have heard the comment that we haven't been getting enough. I know before this council, it was quite arbitrary and you hear a lot like, well, this developer had to put in $3 million and that one put in 50000 and what's going on here? So with the current draft community amenity contribution policy, at least there's a level playing field. Council has had a fair discussion with the, um, the housing task force and so on about what level of amenity is appropriate, and there's been discussion that amenity contributions should be focused on uh, low-income or subsidized housing, uh, housing affordability. What I'm hearing, and it seems to be that the community wants more, I don't see there's any issue with council updating that draft policy. I mean, that's been part of the point, to put out this draft policy, yeah, hear the feedback, and adjust it. Yeah, policy be the next it.
0: stage, right? And get a policy that sort of affects everyone equally, right? Because you were saying, like, some developments only have to do this, and some developments only have to do that. It didn't seem there's any cohesion of what they have to do. So you're suggesting we put it in policy that sort of says, all right, this is what we want from all of you, and this is, like, the level playing field. This is what the rules are before you even come thinking
1: about talking to us about developing. If you want an up zone, right? So this doesn't apply. If there's no up zone, there's no opportunity to do this but there is a draft policy that council passed I think in 2015 or 2016 so that's what they've been following and you know I think with some of the feedback the the next council is gonna look at okay well do we adjust that policy and ask for more essentially
0: yeah and I think that would make a lot of people happy because especially with you know companies like LNG where I think we could get more
1: (laughs) Well, and see, that's where, you know, as I understand, it, community many contribution, that policy wouldn't apply to them. It was zoned as industrial. They moved in as an industrial facility so that the district doesn't have the discretion to say, you can only do that if you give us all this stuff. We just don't have that leverage from a legal perspective. So it's where, you know, for example, Garibaldi Springs, which is a bit contentious, it was zoned as a golf course. And they wanted to change the zoning, upzone it to residential and therefore there was council discretion and therefore council could sort of say no nah, it's not good enough we don't want to do it
0: well apparently there was a lot left on the table there too there's a lot of angry people about the deal that happened at Garibaldi springs
1: that was an interesting one i a few people have said you know we could have gotten more you know there's a suggestion well we could do grants and all that sort of thing i, I didn't hear what specific grants we could get for and you know you have a private developer they're not obligated to sell to the municipality if the municipality finds some great grant that could help us turn it into a park developers not obligated to turn <laughs> over their property to do that so what i heard from the squamish rivershed river, Shed, river <laughs> watershed society is that you know when it became a golf course it really damaged a lot of the ecological value in particular the salmon bearing values of the capacity of, of the streams and speaking of wood fiber with them coming in science tells us is really going to put the salmon at risk so the more we can do to strengthen our salmon bearing streams that's really important you know there's thoughts that well we see bears there we see beavers there obviously it does have ecological value and, and i think my challenge with that is yes there's some wildlife there but is that area performing to where it really should be and I guess there's all kinds of fill and sand. that's all compacted down So it's oh, yeah, it's I
0: mean for a golf course to, to get the grass the way it is. It's, it's there's a lot of treatment, right? You know, there's a lot of not so natural treatments So uh, for people to say that we keep it in the park and it's gonna be e- ecologically sound I, I agree with you. No, it's like again the amount of work to make a golf course the way it is the amount of stuff They put in there. Uh, I, I would say do making it into a residential area, I think, is a smart thing because we need the space and we need to do whatever. It's just how they use the space, I think, is the contentious issue, in my mind.
1: Well, I think, I mean, what they came down to and what got third reading was basically about 15% of the space for housing, and, you know, I may be a little bit off my numbers, 10% on parks that the uh, strata will be responsible for. And then 75% of the space as ecological reserve, where they actually restore it, they try and uh, make the stream so they're back to their salmon bearing potential. I think the one thing that's been challenging for a lot of people in this is like, well, we changed the OCP and I agreed to the OCP and now you're changing again. And where's that security for me? Like I, I, I put like all this money, my whole life savings and then some into my home based on it was going to be this way at my home and around me, and now you're changing it. And I totally get being upset about that. But the reality of an OCP is that it can always be amended. And and so... With it is a living document, yeah. And and with the... What's interesting about the 75%, yes, it's not 100%, but now 75% of that land, if this proceeds forward, will be under a third-party covenancy agreement with a, a conservation organization. So they're for that... Remaining seventy five percent, it'll be sort of much more difficult for that to be changed. Like that is a park now. A lot of people are
0: disappointed in the fact that the OCP was already amended so quickly. I mean, it, there was so much engagement; it was one of the highest engagements that the people said for an OCP and, and history. And it comes down to OCPs across you know the lower mainland. So lots of engagement, and for them to just change it up and do this at the Garibaldi Springs, I think disheartened a lot of people in terms of. We had an OCP, what are you doing? It's a living document. So people, changes will happen and,
1: and and so people ultimately be upset. My understanding is there was some discussion about some projects that were wanting to proceed in parallel with the OCP work. And I believe there's some discussion about, well, you know, do we include this in the broader OCP discussion and maybe derail the whole OCP discussion over a single project? Or do we kind of approve the OCP where we have broad agreement and then tackle these other projects, and it maybe soon after we approve the OCP, but as one-offs, and and I think with a few projects, that's how they went, and the advantage then is, you know, all the good stuff in the OCP, that gets passed through, and then these projects have to go through a very, you know, quite arduous public hearing process, and a lot of, so it, it actually raised the bar for Garibaldi Springs and, and some of these other projects, um, and I understand that people are disappointed, or some people are disappointed these things went through, but if we had tried to just push this into the OCP and keep that part of that discussion, we may have found ourselves with no ECP OCP, we'd still be debating the OCP as a whole. I think part of the logic for separating that out. So
0: going back to LNG, uh, since we, we touched on it briefly, mm-hmm. and it's still a, a big, it's a big issue still in community, where we can say yes or no to it, I think is, uh, is a foregone conclusion is you're saying that we don't have leverage or much leverage to deal with them because it is zoned industrial. but you know their offer of two to three million dollars a year for taxes does not seem to coincide with what the bc assessment might be even though we're not familiar how we should assess lng but they're talking about five or seven million dollars so where
1: do you stand on that the um i've been paying a lot of attention to this one uh bc
0: green party i'm not surprised uh
1: (laughs) so you know my understanding of the the history is um wood fiber made a quote-unquote offer of of two million dollars i I think that's a generous term for guaranteed tax, $2 million a year forever. You know, I said, oh, it'll give us all certainty. BC Liberals were in power at that time. They basically communicated to the municipality that, hey, we want this thing to go through, and so you guys need to, quote-unquote, work with wood fiber, or we'll uh, set the tax rate, essentially. And so the district was kind of between a rock and a hard place because they knew $2 million really wasn't a good deal, but they knew if they pushed too hard, the province would just come in and railroad them, and the municipality would be screwed. But uh, now
0: we don't have a liberal government.
1: But in the interim, the municipality had BC Assessment come in. And BC Assessment put it, you know, they said, well, it could be this or that. But basically we, we assume, we're, we're estimating, I think their numbers are between 6 and $10 million, give or take. And, but, you know, the final number will come in when <laughs> we do the assessment based on your current tax rates. Then the election happened, and it was the NDP in power. Uh, the NDP, my understanding, has communicated to the municipality is like, yes, we support wood fiber, but we're not going to get involved. You do you on terms of municipal taxation. So whatever the, the provincial laws allow, we're, n- we're not going to get involved in your business. So now the starting point for wood fiber, the minimum is whatever BC assessment would go. So they're looking at a minimum of 6 to $10 million. And what the current council has said, and, and I agree with them. Um, I, I should say, I've heard a number of the councilors say it. I don't know that they've had a vote on it that if wood fiber wants quote-unquote certainty they're gonna have to offer something more than what BC assessment is offering the other sort of fly in the ointment here I mean wood fibers and talked about oh you know we're great because jobs 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 there's actually very few jobs one of the reasons they're trying to avoid Canadian jobs is they want to use Chinese steel and Chinese steel workers and they're fighting the Canadian government would normally levy about 350 million dollars in tariffs and wood fibers is fighting that saying well no we just want to build it all in China use Chinese steel Uh, And not pay the tariffs and that's something where I think the municipality needs to be writing to the federal government and saying keep those tariffs there make do everything you can to make sure they build it in Canada because essentially if they build it in China and it's like kind of a, a bargain basement facility the value of it is less our municipal taxes will be less so if we can help make sure that this is Canadian steel Canadian steel workers it will increase our municipal taxes as well I would figure the Canadian government
0: would be all over that (laughs) <laughs> I would assume that they'd be all over like tariffs and like I said, getting that extra you
1: know a few million out of them. I think the fossil fuel industry we've seen is pretty influential in, in Canada. A so. little bit, <laughs> you know. Just a little bit. We, yeah. we bought a pipeline. So yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you pitch the federal government about keeping those tariffs, and then what about the, they want to build their headquarters, I think, in Britannia Beach, so they avoid sort of other taxation when it comes to the district? The, uh, the SLRD is like, yeah, yeah, come on, build your headquarters in Britannia Beach. There's also the issue with Daryl
1: Bay, where they want exclusive use. Is that something that you, you would go for, or they would have to be shared use? I haven't seen any official communication or anything about wanting to build headquarters in Britannia. I mean, what I understood was their business operations like they've been doing their business operations in Vancouver. When they do a presentation, everyone that comes almost is from Vancouver. They, I would be surprised if they built a headquarters. I mean, they're only talking about employing 100 people uh, max, and they said even when uh, I was on the LNG committee with the municipality, their presentations to us, um, that includes their you know custodial staff, HR, and all of that, and for 100 people, that's not a huge team. That's, that's their shifts and so on. So uh, I'm not sure what they would Built in Squamish or Britannia. Th- I think you would see their HR and so on, counting lawyers, those folks, and there's not going to be that many of them in Vancouver, most likely, you know, three people or four people in an office in Squamish or Britannia or something. Um, you know, maybe this refers to construction, that's what they're thinking about. I don't know. In, in terms of Daryl Bay, uh, we have some pretty compelling proposals from some of the tourism operators. And, you know, woodfire says, oh, well, it's only four years and then you can do your tourism thing after. But the tourism business is booming now. One of the options is a ferry to downtown, which, you know, could take off some of the um, traffic from the highway. You know, maybe not a, a well huge there amount. There but is
0: some parking there. You can do somewhat like a park and ride and do like a house sound little ferry thing, which be, you know, <laughs> sounds nice.
1: The long-term future of Squamish, I, I think it's better while we have, while tourism is doing well to get that infrastructure in place where so we can afford it. I think that'll help our tourism industry survive for the long term. I think Wood Fiber is in a position where it could build, you know, their their launching point anywhere. It doesn't need to be at Darrell Bay, so it doesn't make economic sense for me to dedicate that to Wood Fiber. And then furthermore, on the LNG committee, they were talking about this was going to be a two-year, maybe a three-year construction period. And they said that over and over again, and we met the company that was or had presentations, I believe, from one of the companies that was supposed to be designing their construction phase or You also then look at their press releases. Oh, they're going to start operations in 2016. And then another oh oh, we're going to start operations in 2017. Oh, no, we're going to start operations in 2018. And here we are in 2018, and they haven't even put a shovel on the ground. We cannot trust and rely on a four-year construction time frame. Right, Their their numbers are all over the place, constantly changing. It's just much too, you know, our tourism industry, they're talking about a much simpler project. They can get that done and moving let Wood Fiber do their shuttling for staff somewhere else. It just doesn't make sense for Squamish. Water access in Squamish is fairly limited, so getting tourists on the
0: water would be a good thing. So Garibaldi, Squamish, uh, lots of questions arising there. Uh, they seem to have their, their ducks in a row. A lot of people don't agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a podcast with them, and if they clarified some of the issues I think that we see. Um, what do you think is the big problem with Garibaldi, Squamish, or are you for the project?
1: I have some concerns. I don't know enough about the current iteration to sort of say this is great or it's terrible. I will need some real reassurance from them to feel like I can really get behind it. I think, you know, last time it came around, I would talk to a representative who one day who would give me the impression that this was not meant to compete with Whistler. This was a, a local community hill, just community focused and, you know, a few jobs and, and lots of fun. And you know, wasn't going to cause traffic problems because there wasn't going to be all kinds of people going there. And then the next day I talked to someone is like, oh, no, this is world class. This is going to help the environment because people aren't going to want to bother going up to Whistler. And they're just going to come here instead and it's going to be wonderful. And there's going to be an electric train running to move people around so no cars on the mountain. And then I look at the environmental assessment. There's no talk about an electric train. So I kind of got the feeling like I people were telling me what they thought I wanted to hear as opposed to what this project was you know, I think at the time, a lot of people were saying, well, with climate change, it doesn't seem t- so smart to be building a, a ski resort. And they kind of said, oh, no, 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 we've checked, we can do it, there's special microclimate there, and it'll it'll all work. But I think now, what I've heard so far, and you know, again, maybe they will clarify this, and I'll have a better understanding, but is that, well, you know, we're more year-round focused, more focused on downhill mountain biking, maybe that kind of thing. And, and they've
0: I, already released their trail maps.
1: Right, and, and so that's okay. Uh, but you know, especially if the municipality expands its boundaries, if the resort fails, we are on the hook for the roads, the sewers, all of as a municipality. Yeah. And you were so adamant, you know, at, at different points in historically that this is the right project, this project will go and last, but then two years later, it's a significantly different project. And it seems to me this has happened repeatedly. So how as a community can we have faith that this iteration is the one that's viable for 50 years, that's not going to
0: well, I mean, they've been working on it for 20 years. I'm playing devil's advocate. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they, they've been working on it for, for 20 years. Uh, of course, they have different reiterations every time they approach the uh, you know district about this is what we want to do. And you know, they've done their assessment. They've, they spent many years working on their assessment. They're looking at uh, having their own aquifer. They've uh, talked about putting in their own road. Uh, they talked about satellite fire, satellite police. They've talked about having 22,000 beds and housing and like a their own little authority of housing where their staff can live and buy homes there. Uh, they said all the right things. And in terms of train, they did mention train, but uh, if it was not in the paperwork, then, but in our podcast, they did mention a train going in and out and uh, an all season resort. Uh, the one thing they didn't really talk about was alleviating traffic, uh, the extra volume that goes on the road, but they said that's something they were willing to work with the province to figure out how to basically uh, like absolve that traffic issue. And I asked him the question about feasibility. I asked him like, okay, well, say your first phase or second phase doesn't go where you plan and we're part of the district now, you're part of the district now, we're, we're gonna be left holding the bag. And he said he he said, Our feasibility studies what it looks like that will not happen. It's just it will be self, will be self sustaining, self sufficient. There'll be no point in time where you'll be holding the bag. Does that ring true to you? Does that sound like a bunch of flags waving now? Well, or?
1: yeah, it, it, like because you know, th- I think that's what I heard a few years ago. The last time I heard it, and now it's they've changed a number of things, and it's like, okay, well, this time with the new feasibility study, it's going to last. You know, when I keep on hearing the same story, but the project is changing so much, I'm a bit uncomfortable. I, I don't have the certainty that this actually can be feasible. It, it, it seems very abstract. It seems like. Um, know creative people ambitious people sort of need ideas but it doesn't seem all that solid to me right now Right, I have some discomfort with the idea that we do our territorial acknowledgments and acknowledge we're on unceded Squamish nation territory and then this deal is that the crown leases quote-unquote crown land which is we say all the time is unceded territory to a private developer and some of it I think is sold uh, are going to be sold and then Squamish Nation gets like a 10% piece of that. That seems very strange to me as we're trying to work towards reconciliation and so on, that why isn't this a, if we're going to do this sort of thing, why isn't this a Squamish Nation project with the developers at 10% interest helping it along?
0: they talked about actually working with the Squamish Nations quite a bit. Uh, They're actually going to change their name to more of something that's reflective of the Squamish Nation, and they've said they've worked uh, directly with them on many levels of the uh, environmental assessment. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate. Uh, So, I mean, there seems to be a lot of tie-in with with the nation. And the only issue I find um, I think they're going to have is another flag for me is the fact that the SLRD is like, "Eh, you know, we're going to make your life hard on this. And the province telling them you can't be your own municipality too, right? So why are they coming to Squamish and asking to be? part of the district is where I my red flag goes up. It's like, why are you asking to be part of us? Yeah, great, there's gonna be a lot of taxes and a lot of jobs and a lot of stuff coming our way, but why isn't the SLRD interested in this? Why is the province not
1: interested? What I heard from a provincial representative at the last Future of House Sound Forum is that the province has no interest in pursuing Garibaldi at Squamish unless at least one municipality in the region is like rah 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 we really really want this so you know garibaldi at squamish i think has seen that okay well whistler's not going to advocate for us maybe we can get a a favorable council who will go to the province say oh yeah yeah we changed our mind we really really want this because otherwise the province has no from what i heard no interest in pursuing this you know garibaldi at squamish and i've seen them at a lot of events they're they're working hard because if they don't get a friendly, a really friendly <laughs> Squamish council. That's probably not going to happen.
0: To extend the district lands, do you think that should be a referendum question?
1: I don't know. I it's you know from the perspective that's a big decision that will impact everyone. Yes, but it's also such a complicated decision. Uh, you know, is it going to be an informed decision if if we're going to a a referendum? I mean, it, it may be interesting when we see the results on the PR uh, proportional representation. Repre- Referendum which is coming you know mail-in ballots a very low barrier. It's a month after the municipal elections Seeing the response there may give me some comfort as to whether or not a a referendum would be a good idea I'm um, I don't have a hard feeling at this point one way or the other on a referendum.
0: I guess we all need more information. Yeah, I and, think so. And they're, they're doing their good, their due diligence to bring out that information, but uh, there's a lot of misinformation going on around, uh, especially on the social media forums and, and so forth. So yeah, uh, we will both be working diligently to sort of get the right and correct information out there. Um, anything else that uh, I might have glossed over that you want to pinpoint? Anything big issues, like any pet projects you want to work on while you're in
1: council? I tend to back away from the idea of pet projects just because I think there's been so much change and so many different sorts of people coming to Squamish. I think council's really going to have to focus on the things that they all agree on and that's Im- e- sort of equally important to all of them, I think, to the degree that people are championing individual things, even if, even if in and of themselves they're wonderful things. I think we're just pulling in too many different directions then, so I'm really trying to think less about what are the things that are really important to me but rather what are the things that you know can try and bring all these different groups and values and parts of our community together and it's no easy task but uh, so i think that's where we need to focus on
0: are, are you so you're happy with what sort of in the pipeline right now then with the densifying of downtown with the smart growth properties sort of easing off on some of the developments say chima lands uh, making sure we have right to commercial property what how is going so far is sort of okay or th- you don't think there's any need for any extra alterations
1: in general i i think council i think things are generally on the right track when i moved here with my partner nine years ago the appeal was that it wasn't a really big town i really liked the small town i grew up sort of in the boonies and i i kind of like that so i and i've heard from other people like i don't like all this development and i i share a bit of that to be honest it's it's it is uncomfortable to see so many buildings going up and so much change so fast. The reality is in a free market or pseudo free market society, we don't really have a lot of ability to say, no, you can't come here. I'm here, but you can't come here. So it is trying to find a way to, to navigate that that is going to be not just council but our communities challenge and it, it's tough for all of us I think or for many of us
0: yeah I mean uh, densifying is, is always an issue especially if, if you're not used to the density mm-hmm. I mean downtown we're talking about buildings that are pos- six stories tall we're talking about um, well Jumar is a perfect example of something that m- went horribly wrong in my opinion so I mean it's a question of sitting there and being I guess vigilant and being paying attention that more juirs don't happen or is that just part of the plan about densification or something that you can't really ultimately control
1: it, it's sort of a small thing but I would like to have a bit more of a conversation about viewscapes I know my parents are in a newer neighborhood in nanaimo and they're on a hillside overlooking uh, the Strait and they've got bylaws in place about how high everyone's roof is to ensure that everyone has a, an unobstructed viewscape. And I think some of those things, as we look at density, are, are things we really need to think about. I wonderful when you go downtown and see the Chief or see the Tantalus Range, and, and I think we need to be very careful about losing that.
0: Well, densifying is part of the smart growth process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about you know, keeping everyone in one space with the infill instead of sprawl. So are you in favor more of, of sprawl or, or or more of the infill density? Or, again, you're sort of happy where we're kind of going along.
1: Well, I, I think, you know, the focus is meant to be on infill. That's kind of what the OCP uh, effectively says. We're going to focus on density. And I think it keeps infrastructure costs lower. It makes it easier for municipal transit to happen. Yeah, I think it is really smart planning. It's where, in, in terms of what we consume as a society... We cannot sustain sprawling development. It's just, and especially as people are concerned about their municipal taxes, if we sprawl, those are really going to go up. Yeah, I I am focused on densification and infill. You're going to
0: lose those views of the chief downtown.
1: That's where the balancing comes in. And, you know, like I said, I, I grew up in a out in the boonies on a 10 acre tree farm. We couldn't see any of our neighbors and that's what I'm used to. That's what I'm comfortable with. So I, I understand the challenges with densification and it, it's not an easy thing, but when you look at balancing really tough competing interests. So
0: what's your slogan? What's your pitch? How can people get
1: in touch with you? I think my website is christophersquamish.com. You think? Yeah, <laughs> well, no, it is. Well, I've got a few different domains and they all point to the same thing. So okay. that's, that's the main right. one I've, I've gone with. I think the Facebook page is up now. Um, it's Chris for squamish or if you search you're for Chris on like I know <laughs> If you search for Chris <laughs> Pettengill on Facebook you will find my <laughs> election page and the uh, the website will be up soon enough. I, I'm always you know I'm an IT guy. I'm a tech guy so I am very comfortable with technology but I am a little bit skeptical of and I think it was my experience last time I ran I put a lot of time into a website and getting sign graphics and getting a sign up and spending money on signs it just left me feeling like, is this really contributing to the community at the end of the day, though? Like, am I really... Maybe it's helping me get a few more votes, but it is something I struggle with because it, it just doesn't feel like it's meaningful stuff. And I know you have to do it, so I'm sort of getting myself getting that stuff well, out there. Well, you
0: listen to the podcast, How to Win the Election, and he says, signs... There's no actual in- evidence whether science convinces anyone to vote in a different way or, or not. My argument is with science is that it's marketing. It's one of those things where you'll go into the ballot and you have to pick six names for counsel. You have four that you really, really like. Those last two, uh, well, that guy, I've seen that guy's name everywhere. Mm-hmm. Bink! You know, and that's that's where I think the science come to play. Uh, whether or not, I, and this is me disagreeing with a Quest University chief sure. <laughs> uh, academic officer with a bunch of initials after his name. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's just me in broadcasting forever. So, You do you, man, and I think that's what's going to help you stick out from the rest of the the candidates, and I wish you luck.
1: Oh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for your podcast. I think uh, what I'm hearing, people are really enjoying being able to hear the candidates, and you you go to an all-candidates meeting, and you have maybe 30 seconds to try and differentiate yourself from 22 other people, and so with this, people are actually getting to know some of their candidates. Thank you.
0: This is the Sea to Sky Podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky Podcast. Thank you for clicking us on.